Welcome to Play On, the Morgan Sports Store podcast. This episode is part one of a two-part series discussing Rule 50 of the Olympic Charter. I'm Tom Seymour, a barrister at Morgan Sports Law, and I'm joined today by my colleague, Nee Anderson. I'm also joined by two very special guests. First, I'm joined by Tiana Bartoletta. Tiana has won three Olympic gold medals and is a reigning Olympic champion in the long jump and the 4x100 relay. She's a two-time world champion in the long jump and was part of the team that set the current world record for the 4x100 relay. She is also a board member of the recently formed Athletics Association and has blogged on athletes' rights issues. The second special guest is Brendan Schwab. Brendan is, amongst other roles, the Executive Director of the World Players Association, which is a global union of players and athletes across professional sport. Brendan is a labour and human rights lawyer who has dedicated his career to protecting athletes' rights. So, welcome everybody. Thank you very much for joining me. Thank you for having us. In today's episode, we will be discussing Rule 50 of the Olympic Charter. Specifically, we will be discussing paragraph 2 of Rule 50, and that paragraph provides no kind of demonstration or political, religious, or racial propaganda is permitted in any Olympic sites, venues, or other areas. So, having explained what the relevant words say, let's now move on to the discussion. And the first topic or first area that I would like us to discuss is the context of Rule 50. And Rule 50 has, in fact, been around in various forms for decades. And therefore, my first question to our panel is, what has sparked the current debate around Rule 50, or perhaps what has reignited that debate? So, whichever of Brandon, Nee, and Tiana want to address that question first of all. It seems to me that the recent flare up of racial tensions in the United States has awakened not just the public, but athletes specifically, especially, um, because there was a few things that came together in a perfect storm. First, we had COVID-19 and essentially shutting down or bringing sport to a complete crawl. So a lot of us were already dealing and struggling with the uncertainty of what our life as athletes looked like. At the same time, racial tensions kind of erupting here also forced a lot of us to actually pay attention to what our life as Black athletes looked like. And suddenly, with all this extra time, honestly, that we have on our hands, we were able to put that energy towards speaking up about it, the tolerance level for being put in a box as athlete when there are no sports suddenly doesn't make sense. And you're forced to recognize the humanity there. And I think that that is part of the reason why Rule 50 feels very much tone deaf these days and why a lot more people are looking at it as something that needs to be revisited. And Brandon, do you you have anything to add to that? I certainly agree with Tiana that the the recent wave of athlete activism that we've seen globally in relation to the Black Lives Matter campaign has been you know, highly empowering. And what has been very interesting from a global perspective is how that campaign has been translated 
uh, throughout different sports leagues and different sports throughout the world. For example, it's become a big driver of Indigenous uh, recognition in Australia and New Zealand. We've seen the European soccer leagues all stand in, in solidarity with, with Black Lives Matter. But I do believe that there have been very powerful forces within sport as well, which has driven the review of Rule 50. Athletes have been seeking to be organised for some time at the global multi-sport level. The World Players Association itself is only some four or five years old because we are part of a response to a frustration on the part of athletes that too many decisions have been made at a global and multi-sport level which uh, have not genuinely taken into account the voice of athletes and so the athletes themselves have been becoming more organised and in new ways. I think the establishment of the Athletics Association is a wonderful development, but if we only go back 12 months to France and the 29 FIFA Women's World Cup, we saw an incredible campaign on behalf of women athletes for equal pay and for gender equality. And so there's now a very pressing demand for sport to embed human rights, not only of the athletes, but of everyone who is involved in the delivery of sport. And in many ways, this came to a tipping point with the revelations of the abuse of migrant workers in Qatar in relation to the 2022 FIFA World Cup. There's been a real problem that the legacy of these mega sporting events has not lived up to the very high rhetoric, which motivates host cities and countries to host these events in, in, in the first place. And FIFA, now the International Olympic Committee, UEFA, the Commonwealth Games Federation and a variety of other sporting federations are responding to a very simple demand that if they want to maintain their social licence and actually be seen as a force for good, then they are going to have to respect the human rights of everyone who's affected by sport, including the athletes. And Neve, do you have anything to add as to why you think Rule 50 is very much in the spotlight now? Or do you think Tiana and Brendan have, have covered everything? Uh, I think Tiana and Brendan have given very comprehensive and holistic answers to the, to the question. I think one element that can't be overlooked is the fact that the IAC Virus Athletes Commission published guidance on Rule 50 or paragraph two of Rule 50 in January of this year. And that guidance made it clear that the now ubiquitous act of, of kneeling or you know, raising a fist like John Carlos and, and Tommy Smith did would, for the IOC's purposes, amount to a political gesture uh, and therefore be in breach of the provisions of Rule 50. There was some protest or remonstration with the IOC from athlete bodies at the time of its publication, but that that's died down until the recent spate of killings of, of African-Americans in the US, as, as mentioned by Tiana. And in that context, and having regard to what, as Brendan has identified, other sporting and governing bodies were doing in terms of partnering with, or at the very least, accommodating protests by their athlete populations, the AC's Rule 50 was made to look particularly out of touch. Well, thank you all for your answers to, to that one. 
me helpfully and it, it wasn't planned i promise has introduced the athletes commission guidance um, which came out at the start of the year and what i wanted to ask you first of all tiana was what, what were your thoughts on reading that guidance which amongst other things made very clear it specifically singles out kneeling and says no kneeling will not be permitted yeah my first reaction was are you serious because it clearly read to me like if you are black and you are planning to do anything to protest or demonstrate racial inequality we are talking to you and you are in breach and it does not matter that you've had to overcome all of these things that the entire world is now exposed to that african americans and african american athletes go through but not only do they not care that you've achieved and overcome all of those things and that you made it to the podium if you do that you are still going to be punished it does not matter and for kneeling or raising a fist to be put in the same category as racial propaganda is offensive because the definition of propaganda and i know they have access to dictionaries is that on the surface that information is biased or misleading in order to prove a political cause or point how is me arguing or demonstrating that my life should be treated equally propaganda? And so it's very offensive. And it was, it was a slap in the face, honestly, because we have been making so many strides. Like Brendan said, we're starting to unionize. We're starting to use our voice. We've gotten out of this shut up and dribble box. We've started to make noise, started to really embrace the fact that we aren't just athletes. And IOC, who represents the pinnacle of our sport, is saying, no, actually, you're not. And that's the, that's the reaction that I had. And, and Brendan, I'll ask you two questions if I can. Firstly, what was your reaction? And secondly, perhaps you could explain how the Athletes Commission functions, how the members of the Athletes Commission are elected and chosen, what its role is. Because... We'll see later on in the story. To me, it seems to be being used by the IOC as something of a shield. Sure, we, we can talk about the Athletes Commission, but, but in relation to the, the first question, I think, sadly, when I, when I read the guidance, I felt that the IOC doesn't understand its own history. The actions of, uh, for example, John Carlos, Peter Norman and Tommy Smith in 1968 they were outstanding statements, iconic actions in terms of sport being a force for good, sport being a force for the humanitarian values which the IOC purports to promote. And we need to understand that the two great enabling rights are freedom of expression and freedom of association. So if those rights are taken away, all the other rights that we talk about including being represented in a committee or any, any other right, they just crumble away, they just fall away. And I think that, and I like to you know, really highlight the Australian in, in, in 1968, Peter Norman, who passed away in, in, in 2006, received an apology from the Australian government posthumously in 2012. And in 2018, even the Australian Olympic Committee recognised him as being a champion of sport and, and human rights. So in that context, 
we were hopeful that the IOC was seeing that these these acts are welcome statements of Olympic values, if Olympic values are going to be true for, for human rights. You may recall the Ethiopian runner, Faisa Lalisa, mm-hmm. in 2016 in Rio. He was not sanctioned for actions which were not dissimilar to those of, of, of Smith and Carlos, and we felt that that was a welcome enlightenment. But when we read about the guidance, the guidance fails for a very fundamental point, and that is that it's telling people when and how they should speak. And therefore, that is not freedom of expression. It's okay you protest, provided you do so away from where uh, it may be uncomfortable for us. It's actually even more restrictive than, than that, in the sense that Athletes are allowed to express their views, I quote, that's the language used at places like during press conferences and interviews in mixed zones at team meetings. But they're not, in fact, even allowed, according to the guidance, to protest there. All they can do is express their views. And later on, the document says, for the avoidance of doubt, something like taking a knee, that is a protest. It is not expressing a view, and therefore you can't do it anywhere that's associated with the Olympics. So, sorry, Brendan, I butted in, but I thought it was worth making yeah, that no, clear. I think, I think the clarification's welcome. And so the, the question that the IOC should be asking itself is, as a major multinational business that is also a sports uh, organiser, how do we uphold our responsibility to respect the internationally recognised human rights of the people we affect, including the athletes. That's really the question that the the IOC... So the question is really not for the athletes as to when and how they should be able to speak. The question is really one for the IOC about how it's going to meet its fundamental responsibility. And the risk we face when we start this discussion as an IOC Rule 50 discussion is we're in some ways presuming the legitimacy of IOC Rule 50. The real question in our view is how can the IOC uphold its responsibility to respect the internationally recognised human rights of the athletes, including in relation to freedom of expression, which of course is not an absolute right. It's rightly conditional on things such as not promoting hatred, not promoting vilification, not promoting things which are a threat to public order and public, public safety. And we believe that the internationally recognised human rights in and of themselves, carefully uh, drafted in a way which would certainly preserve any threat to the beauty of the Olympic Games. Well, later on, we will come on to how a rule might be drafted if you start from the premise that there needs to be some restriction on what athletes and others involved in the Olympics can say or do on the podium or elsewhere. How do you draft a rule that works, that's proportionate, that allows the right things to flourish and doesn't allow the wrong things to flourish. But we'll come on to that. The only thing I had to add from my perspective on the guidance was that I think the choice of words in some places is, as Tiana has written about at length, unfortunate. The guidance talks about, for example, not destroying the dignity of the competition and the medal ceremony. I think one might rightly ask what what dignity there is in being recognised as a champion athlete if you face being treated as an inferior human when you when you step away from the podium it also suggests that its intention is to prevent divisive disruption and in doing so it seems to me to suggest that the message of racial equality can legitimately be said a divisive notion which 
I mean, I, I can't, can't think that could be right. So it, it read very much to me as something that was trying to preserve the notion of the kind of the athlete as just that and, and not more than that, as Tiana has touched on. To me, it seeks to reiterate the IOC's desire to keep the competition in the vacuum, kind of free from the issues in the real world. And I can completely understand, kind of at least to the degree that I can as a non-athlete, that the chance to win an Olympic medal is an extremely rare one and requires years of consistent and extreme hard work. So that achievement should be given the requisite recognition. However, I think, I think of what might drive an athlete in that moment, on that pinnacle, not to simply bask in the moment, but to be compelled to make a statement about the mistreatment that they or others may may face, notwithstanding the, the consequences that demonstrating or protesting may have for them. So I, I, think, I think the reaction to the guidance really ought to demonstrate that, if it was unclear to anyone, how pervasive these issues can be in, in certain athletes' lives, and that not all of them have kind of the privilege of un, unplugging from these issues they face to indulge in in the IOC's vision of a neutral and utopian world. Thank you, Neil. If, if we move on now to think briefly about how Rule 50 works, and I appreciate Brendan's already pointed out that we shouldn't focus too much on Rule 50 because we should be questioning why Rule 50 even exists or certainly why it exists in its present format. But if we part that for the moment, what I wanted to ask Brendan, first of all, is on what basis does Rule 50 bind Olympic athletes like Tiana? What, what's the contract there? Well, what we see with these events is it's effectively a unilaterally uh, imposed contract. The IOC is a monopoly over this particular event. And if the athlete wishes to compete, they must uh, sign the contract. And so what that means is, is, is quite pervasive in the sense that the IOC is an organisation based in Lausanne, Switzerland. It will result in this contract being enforced through private arbitration, which ends up at the Court of Arbitration for Sport based in Lausanne. And, and the governing law of that contract effectively becomes the Olympic Charter. That is, the sports regulations can prevail over and often operate to the exclusion of national law and indeed the international human rights principles that we're, we're talking about. So the way that's enforced is that if an athlete wants to stand up against that, and this is why players or athletes like Norman Smith and Carlos and others are so respected, is the way in which uh, they have to stand up for their rights is they have to be willing to sacrifice their career because the only way they can prevent the enforcement of that contract is effectively to opt out of the system as a matter of principle. We all know how short-term and precarious an athletic uh, career is. And to pick up on Mir's point, I think it takes great principle and great courage to sacrifice that career and also sacrifice that moment when the world is going to recognise you as having achieved your athletic goals to sacrifice that moment for a principle which you believe is much, much greater than yourself. And Tiana, from an athlete's perspective, what, what I would be interested to know is, is it a gradual process where it begins to dawn on you the extent to which you don't have control as an athlete? Or is it something that you were well aware of when you first started out? It definitely was 
there was a progression because when I first, when I first stepped into this, this world of professional sport, I was 19 years old and I just won my first world championship title. And I was all about, yeah, I'm going to be number one. That's what I cared about. It was like make teams, win medals. That's it. And I think it took, you know, maybe my second or third team to actually read the document I was signing at team processing where, you know, there were phrases like, this actually doesn't guarantee you a spot on the relay team. Sure, you made the team in the 100, but that doesn't mean you're on the relay team. And a lot of us never read those things. There's a line in there that's like, if you don't wear these specific shoes on the podium, we won't give you your medal. And then suddenly it's like, wait a minute, what was so exciting about getting out here and winning actually can be quite easily taken away from me if I don't behave, which is what it felt like. And so, yeah, it dawned on me over time. Because just like, just like anything with life experience, you learn what the role of your manager is supposed to be. I remember in the beginning, I thought I worked for my manager, you know, like just where do we go next? Where's my next meet? And, you know, 10, 15 years later, I'm like, this is what we're doing. This is what I need. You know, it was very different. And it's the same way with reading the fine print and looking at the, the IOC and what these words mean. We were on a call with the IOC not too long ago. And I just asked them like, why this rule? Why the hesitation to support us as the athletes that make this show work? And I asked, is it about your commercial sponsors? And I ran down a list of all their commercial sponsors and what I could find about their stance on the same issues. And so Mm -hmm. I said, it looks like you're the only person dragging your feet here because all of your sponsors either are very engaged in human rights or equality specifically. And it's really refreshing to be on this podcast with you all now as lawyers, because there's so much uh, just going back and forth about things that don't make sense and circular logic. It is ridiculous that I didn't notice this sooner, but like Brendan was saying, it is bigger than me now. And there's a whole generation of athletes that are looking at this moment and wondering if we are going to cherish them as human beings or continue to put them in this box, are we going to continue to ignore the fact that all the world over there are issues that need to be addressed and that we as athletes are essentially global ambassadors who can bring people together. Sure. But can also use that platform to raise awareness. And so I wasted a lot of time not realizing and understanding this before, but yes, I'm here now (laughs) and I plan to, to keep, to keep putting pressure on them because this is really important to all of us. Can I ask a follow-up question? You said you explained to the IOC, well, look, these are your commercial partners. They all seem to be in the same boat on the same team, pulling in the same direction. What's going on? What's the reason why we have, or you have this system in place And, and what did they say? in response to you? I got no answer. No answer at all. And in fact, um, because we got no answer, we know we just move on to the next thing, which is like, so what happens if we break this rule? And they don't actually have an answer for that either. It goes to some committee of an uncertain number of people, unnamed people who will determine on a case by case basis, if you are in breach of the rule. So there's not even a way for us to know absolutely what the consequence will be for using this moment as a protest or to raise awareness. So there's a lot of 
not knowing, unknowing at the IOC as well. And it makes it difficult for us to have this fight, to have this discussion because there's very little information. And that's going to be the next question actually is um, what sanctions an athlete could face. But before, before I ask that, Nia, have you got anything you want to, to, to add about how Rule 50 works, how it binds athletes? Only that in Rule 40 of the Charter, it's stated specifically, it's, it's the unilateral term that Brendan was referring to, which, which is that in order to participate in the Olympic Games, a competitor, team official or other team personnel must respect and comply with the Olympic Charter, which would obviously include Rule 50 and its provisions. If I could also just, just add, I think the, to Tiana's point regarding the commercial sponsors of the IOC, I think that's a, a pressure point that could be quite interesting because as we saw with the now Washington football team, you know, years of protest and talking about the inappropriate nature of its name didn't come to bear until FedEx and Nike said, you know, we're, we're not going to be colluding with you in this anymore. So yeah, it'd be interesting to see how, how that goes. Thank you, Nee. So in terms of sanctions and sanctioning, what sanctions could someone face? Let's try and help Tiana with her question that the IOC couldn't answer. And if we look back at, at history, Brendan's already raised an example from Rio from 2016, which is arguably, as he says, has some similarities. What sanctions do you think athletes could face, Brendan, were they to show their support for the Black Lives Matter movement, for example? at Tokyo 2021? It's a really interesting question, and I think there's deliberate uncertainty here. And what's really important to understand is that when there's a significant power imbalance, the uncertainty favours those who are in a powerful situation. So really, this is a situation where the IOC is reserving its rights to take uh, action from a quiet and polite reminder in relation to uh, Faisa's case, to the draconian actions that were taken against athletes like Vincent Matthews, Wayne Collette, uh, and, of course, who we've already referred to, Smith and Carlos, who were basically sent home immediately. It could be revocation of medals and titles and so on. But that uncertainty deliberately exists, particularly when the dispute resolution system is something which is ultimately the domain of the Olympic Charter. I think we can learn, however, as to what has happened in relation to football and the Black Lives Matter situation, and the IOC is at odds with that. But the FIFA president, Gianni Infantino, responded to players being booked for, or receiving a yellow card for those who aren't, aren't football or soccer fans because it's a strict violation of the rules of soccer to take your shirt off and to celebrate a goal, and that was re revealing a, a message on the undershirt Black Lives Matter and respect for, for the lost lives of so many now, which are, which are tragic, but certainly prompted by the death of George Floyd. The FIFA president said, let's use common sense, which is welcome. One's right to freedom of expression cannot exist at the discretion of the president of the International Sports Federation. It needs to be embedded. But what it means is that FIFA was able to, to read the public opinion and had there been a difficult reaction, then FIFA would have well have been within its rights to, to enforce its rules, to try and quell the protest. Now, the important thing is that human rights are advanced often when it's difficult to do so, often against the weight of public opinion. 
And so the real test here is when is it uncomfortable to do so? And the only sports leader so far who has really come out strongly and said we welcome the uncomfortable conversation is David Grevenberg, the, the Chief Executive of the Commonwealth Games Federation, who's already said that, that, that we will welcome this as part of the Birmingham Games in 2022. And I think he understands that true reconciliation between sport and human rights is essential if, if, if that event and indeed global sport more generally is to be legitimised. And just quickly picking up the point of business, business has had human rights issues for many years and, that, and, and they've had to get supply chains and, and other things in order, including some of the biggest companies in sports, including Adidas and Nike, who have all had problems with uh, the abuse of labour and others in, in, in supply chains. My first involvement in this was in the mid-1990s when it emerged that the soccer balls being licensed by FIFA were being manufactured by child labourers in Pakistan. So the business community now has 20 or 30 years of experience of respect for human rights and they're now major sponsors of sporting events and again finding themselves associated with human rights scandals after having worked so hard to leg legitimise their own business models. So business does have a very profound role to play. We very much welcome the role of other businesses such as and broadcasters such as BT, Coca-Cola's been a leader, Visa. These are important companies that can really help drive positive change at a time when we're also seeing businesses emerge from China, and the Middle East themselves with problematic human rights records, which are also major sponsors. So it's um, a really challenging time in that space, but I think, I think uh, Tiana's point about business and NIRS uh, are very, very relevant. And Ni, do you have anything to add in terms of likely or possible sanctions? I think it's been covered very comprehensively by Brendan. I would only add that no doubt if the IAC doesn't get you your National Olympic Committee might. So we saw recently American hammer thrower Gwen Berry and the fencing athlete Race Imboden, who were put on probation for 12 months by the US Olympic and Paralympic Committee for kneeling on the medal podium during the 2019 Pan Am Games. And interestingly, as it relates to Vincent Matthews and Wayne, Wayne Collette, my understanding is that their coach managed to talk the IOC president into lifting their suspension, but it was actually the US Olympic Committee at the time who voted to keep them sidelined. So we've covered the sanctions that may come from the IOC, but the fallout could be much wider than that. It could come in terms of you know being afforded less preferential treatment or possibly being dropped by by your sponsors. Yes, may I add something to what Nee and Brendan both said? We were told by the USOC that they were told by the IOC that they had to be the ones to do the sanctions. That, uh, and it felt like when we learned that the IOC kind of just wants to wash their hands of the responsibility of sidelining athletes. So in a way, I think they know that this is hypocritical and they just need someone to like really push that button or pull that thread because they pass the buck onto our national governing bodies. And when we talked to Sarah Hirschland about that, about this, she said, you know, she is tasked with enforcing the rules. And she said it in a way that made it clear to us that if she didn't, there were real consequences for a USOC from the IOC as well. And so 
like Brendan was saying, it's a power imbalance. And it reminds me of being in a toxic relationship where the rules are always changing. The goalposts are always moving. And so eventually you modify your behavior completely just so that whatever happens, you can't, your behavior can't be interpreted as anything contrarian to what that person wants. And that's, that's what it feels like right now. Now, moving on, Brendan's already explained, and I think we were all nodding along in agreement, that Rule 50 is an infringement of athletes' freedom of expression. And Brendan also fairly explained that on occasion, in certain circumstances, such an infringement can be justified, that it's not a, an unlimited right. And in that regard, it's perhaps interesting to note what Dick Pound had to say earlier this year, in February, I think it was, following the start of this discussion, this year's discussion about Rule 50. Dick Pound, for our listeners, is an IOC member. And he was published an opinion piece in a Canadian newspaper. And he said, in a free society, rights may come with certain limitations. Rule 50 restricts the occasions and places for the exercise of such rights. It does not impinge on the rights themselves. Now, he said other things as well, but that was really his, his key point in arguing why Rule 50 was justified. And my question is, do you agree? I'm sure you don't. And if you don't agree, why not? Why is it that this infringement cannot be justified? Why can't this limitation be justified? So if I could ask Tiana that, first of all. I think going back to something Brendan said is that one of the problems with this with our conversations about Rule 50 is that we, we initiate them with the assumption that the rule is legitimate in the first place. And that's the problem that I have with his statement, because Rule 50 seems to run counter to what Olympism is in the first place. And they do all of this work about how sport is a unifier and sport is, you know, a vehicle for world peace and for human rights. And that's the basis of their entire Olympic charter. And yet this rule is essentially saying you can't be vocal or aligned with Olympism in that way. It's like you are controlling how somebody displays Olympism in a lot of ways. And so, yeah, I, I don't agree that it's enough that you tell me that I can go stand on that red X across the arena and say what I want to say, and that I should be okay and happy that I was granted and allowed that opportunity. When it comes to this rule, I just, I feel if it is aligned with the principles of, of Olympism, the Olympic charter, then we should have no problem because that is the very thing that you say your organization represents. To me, it seems simple. And Brandon, what's your view on Mr. Pound's reasoning or otherwise in terms of justification for the infringement? Well, again, it's those in power telling others when and how they can speak. And so therefore, it, it, it fails as a rationale at the first hurdle. The only constraints are those set out in the international instruments which we can respect, and that's the abusive use of freedom of expression to promote hatred, to promote violence and the like. Major League Baseball sent out a tweet in response to criticism earlier this month about the San Francisco Giants players for taking a knee during the national anthem. And they said human rights are not political. Now, that's a nice way of looking at it. And we can debate that. 
because we all know that the, the cause of human rights has necessarily become very political and it's required great, great courage. But what I think is unquestionably political is the nature of the awards ceremony at the Olympic Games. It takes on the nature of what we could call a forced ceremony or, or a forced procedure. And the question we could ask ourselves, and this is where it becomes a, a very strict violation of someone's rights. If you're an athlete which is renowned at home for standing up for human rights and against injustice and uh, against a state which is seen to be uh, contrary to those types of things, and you happen to succeed as an athlete, why is it that when you are to be recognised as, as a champion, that you are obliged to stand to attention before the national flag and the national anthem. Now, for people that have made commitments at home to challenge what that can represent, that misrepresents what the athlete is trying to communicate. That is forcing the athlete to make a physical statement which can be inconsistent, horribly inconsistent with that, that person's belief system and the way that person is regarded by their community and other people who share similar beliefs. So the, the award ceremony is in itself a challenging process and I think we need to really take this into account when we, we look at the context of Rule 50. There's a very interesting case in the United States Supreme Court where the leading judgment was delivered by a judge named Robert Jackson who actually led the Allied case in the Nuremberg trials. And he was appointed to the, and had to deal with the Supreme Court, a law that was in place in the 1950s at the time of the Cold War, which required school students to stand to attention to the national flag and the national anthem as part of their curriculum. And the law was challenged by Jehovah's Witnesses, who said that it was contrary to their uh, genuinely held religious, religious beliefs. And Robert Jackson delivered the judgment, which said that that violates the freedom of expression rights in the United States Constitution, this concept of the forced um, ceremony. I think it's a very interesting and relevant case to, to, to the challenge of Rule 50 in the context of the, of the podium. The podium is, whether we like it or not, a political environment for, for every now and then. For, for the vast majority of athletes, it's the absolute triumphant pinnacle of their career and, and, and they're joyously recognising their nationality. And, and, and I don't think that will change. I think that will be the experience for the overwhelming majority for athletes. But as I said, human rights exist to protect the minority. And the whole problem with this directive is it's a majority telling a minority when and how they should enjoy their right. And for that reason, it, it really does fall away at the first hurdle. That concludes part one of this two-part series on Rule 50. Part two will be released shortly, and we hope that you will join us as we continue the conversation. In the meantime, for articles on Rule 50 and other athletes' rights issues, please go to our website, www.morgansl.com. If you are interested in signing up to our mailing list or if there are any topics that you would like to see addressed in a future podcast, please email us at podcasts at morgansl.com. Finally, please connect with us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram and Facebook for articles, updates and news pieces. We hope that you've enjoyed listening today and that you will join us for future episodes of Play On.